Welcome back to another episode of Discover More. This week, we continue our conversation with Dr. Austin Chang. Austin is the Assistant Professor of Medicine at Thomas Jefferson University Hospitals and serves as the Director of the Endoscopic Weight Loss Program and Chief Medical Social Media Officer for the Jefferson Health System. In last week's episode, Austin shares about his journeys into medicine as well as his mission of using social media to dispel misinformation and educate the public on the complexities of the healthcare system. This was released last Monday as episode 62, and we recommend you start there before listening to part two of the interview this week. In this week's episode, we dive into some of the challenges that Austin faces as a content creator, including imposter and comparison syndrome and he shares how he navigates these issues through gratitude and recovery. Additionally, Austin explains the three most important qualities he looks for in advanced fellowship, potential hires, and future teammates. We also discuss the relationship between trust and respect in the healthcare system, as well as the importance of gut health. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Discover More with us and Dr. Austin Chang. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Discover More, where we strive to accelerate the learning process together through intentional dialogues. My name is Benoit. And my name is Aiden. This podcast was built on the foundation of approachable guests, synthesized experiences, and relatable lessons that will help you grow throughout your journey. Thank you for tuning in this week. We hope you enjoy and continue to Discover More. Yeah, once again, I could hear a sense of, you know, optimistic viewpoint. And I think you're, you just generally speaking, embody a very positive outlook on life, which I really, really respect. And I want to lean into your positivity to offset the balance of my own negativity. I, I mean, I try. I feel like, you know, it might, I might be saying that as, as a way to self-affirm as well, because, <laughs> you know, there are moments where I'm also about to pull my hair out. But, you know, it always it always works out one way or the other. And and looking back, you know, we can learn from whatever experience that is. Yeah, I'd kind of like to just double click on the mindset around all of this, because, you know, moving through the low times, I think, is a challenge for anyone, regardless of what they do for a living, where they were born, what their race is. Like, I think just facing the high and low points of life is something that's universal across everyone that lives on this planet. And I'd really be curious for someone who does as much as you do and is in all of these different positions and collaborating with so many different people. How do you think about these low points? And really just I'm curious for like the mental element of how you do as much as you do. Well, I think everyone processes things differently and copes differently. And I'm not a mental health expert, first of all. But, you know, the way I handle it, things is that I really like to talk it out with people and I rely a lot on friends and family for that. I am pretty much like a, and I know that that doesn't work for everyone because not everyone wants to share personal struggles with other people, but that's how I go about doing it. And, and the reason why I think I keep going back to that is because I think I've learned a lot 
from other people's experiences. When you kind of open up and share your own vulnerabilities and struggles, other people will share theirs and you don't feel so alone. And some people may have the same sort of lived experience to help you through whatever you whatever you're going through. And so, yeah, I like to talk it out. That's kind of like my first step. And, and there are other things that I also, you know, can get caught up on certain things and become very pigeonholed in my thinking at times. And I have to just step away and disconnect. And it's hard to do that, especially like on social media, when there's just a constant stream of, of information being thrown at you, whether it's like good or bad. That type of influence sometimes I just need to like shut off for a second and step away. So yeah, it just depends on the situation. Yeah, I want to go dive a little bit deeper on that topic. And of course, uh, none of us are a mental health expert yet. I'm on my way of transitioning into the mental health space. And also I want to talk quickly about the power of affirmations. The few of the topics I've been really interested in the past couple of weeks, I've been reading a lot about medical and scientific journals articles on epigenetics, that's one, and also neuroplasticity is another one that I'm hugely into and been doing a lot of reading with. And yeah, there is like the fascinating of how neuroplasticity could be utilized through power of affirmations and you can gradually adapt to new belief systems and implement it into your identity work. I think it's huge. So I love your self-affirmations and the power of affirmations are verified through science. I just want to share that. Yeah, but on that topic, like you talked about, as this first C-level suite executive in Jefferson Health System as a chief social media health officer, like social media is upfront on your professional setting and even personal setting. So how do you personally, I know you talked about you deal with the low points of your life through talking, through sharing your vulnerabilities with other people, through building that rapport, through the sheer struggle, you almost see the collective light. But that aside... How do you, once again, I think balancing act is the topic of this interview. How do you achieve that balance between the negativity and the toxicity and also the impact that you're currently trying to achieve through social media? Because I think like imposter syndrome comes to my mind, comparison syndrome comes to my mind, but everything that's in between, how do you yourself deal with that as not just a C-level suite executive, but also someone who is so passionate and have achieved so much impact already in the social media space? I mean, I'm not immune to imposter syndrome or comparisons and things like that, which is why I think that it is important to disconnect from time to time. And again, like talking it out, I feel like there are several people who I feel very comfortable with that I can always call up and just like spill my guts and, you know, really let loose with like my doubts and you know my opinions about certain things and get honest feedback and know that i'm not judged for that and it's hard to identify people like that right and i've been very lucky to have been able to identify those people and have those types of conversations but you know imposter syndrome i've also i think one important thing is that i've increasingly become more accepting of the fact that imposter syndrome will probably always be there and and comparisons will always be there. It's not like one day I will get over it or or I'm going to achieve a certain milestone and that'll fix everything. And that's just not the case, you know? I, I don't know. I, it's funny because I don't know how other people necessarily see me. You know, there, there are moments where people say really nice things and are very encouraging and there are certain types of feedback that I get really do help me out. You know, some of that positive feedback is 
I try to focus on that a little more these days because anyone who's been on social media for a while and has, you know, is publicly has this sort of a presence will know that you may get tons of positive comments and there's just one negative comment that can really throw you off for like a whole week, if not longer. And that certainly has happened to me that it doesn't matter how many positive comments I get, sometimes like it just takes one to ruin it all. But I'm trying to change that and, and make a conscious effort to, you know, be grateful for, for, you know, what I have and what people have said that is positive. And, and I literally will tell myself when I get some of these messages, like, wow, the time that somebody took to type this all up, you know, to say something nice, like that is what I should be valuing. And, um, and every time like I get into this spiral of, oh, like if, is what I'm saying getting out to anybody? Like, does anyone care? You know, there's people who will always remind me that like, hey, if your purpose is being on social media for the public, it only takes one person who feels like you've made an impact for that to be worthwhile. And so I try to like tell myself that every once in a while too, when I get into that funk. I hear you. This almost comes full circle with the title of that documentary you mentioned. And the idea that's coming up for me is trust, right? By sharing your story, like I think it transcends trust between you and your audience, but almost bridges the gap to trust between everyday people and doctors. By sharing so authentically in vulnerability your personal stories, that's kind of bridging the gap of how people perceive doctors, what you kind of mentioned at the beginning of we're everyday people. We have hobbies and interests and personalities as well, which is just something that I really admire, kind of bringing that trust forward to the health system. Because if anything, that seems to be one of the giant themes and even reservations or reasons that COVID played out the way it did. I think it's the lack of trust. And that's, you know, my affirmation towards you of this, you're creating trust through storytelling, through your sharing and Instagram. So don't let that one hater get to you, man. I mean, I, I'm trying, you know, I think that you just saying that also really makes me think about like, what would it be like if we had unbroken trust across healthcare, right? Like if patients had trust in what we do, if we had faith in what our patients are doing, like how amazing would that be? You know, like, I think that it would save us a lot of frustration. It would save patients a lot of frustration. We would get things done. But, you know, that's a perfect, like, ideal scenario, and we can only strive for that. It's probably never going to happen, but, you know, but we can strive to make it as much of a reality as we can. Yeah, so well said on both of you guys. I was recently in a Clubhouse chat room. That's an app that I've, I view Clubhouse as a drug. It's taken so much of my time. I am really struggling to achieve between consumptions and creation, but that's another topic. But the chat room was called, When Should You Trust Someone?, and then a lot of really fascinating ideas and stories came to play. A lot of people were crying. One of the female, she vulnerability and authentically shared about her surviving experience from dating a narcissist. Not just a self-proclaimed narcissist, but someone who is actually on the narcissist spectrum and who is clinically diagnosed. Yeah, she's sharing about how it's hard for her to trust people, period. Because of so much trauma and traumatic experiences that's attached to trust. And But then I shared something right before she shared her experience. I was sharing about how I don't like that this inheritance ideas that America has over trust, especially between employers and employees. What I mean by that is we always phrase it as, why should I trust you? You know, what did you do to earn my trust? We almost view trust as this very rare commodity. It must be earned. 
But if you think about that on that token, it's very arrogant of us to view trust as something to be earned. Because I think trust should be the baseline between human interaction. Period. Trust should be given. And then if he or she did something wrong or established a pattern of behaviors that creates doubt in my mind, a I'm gonna hold him or her accountable. But do you think that trust should be given as a baseline and that you can take it away? But now of course. Like we talked about, nuances are always a key factor. There's always nuances. There's always exceptions to the rule. Just like the a woman I I brought up earlier, right? Yeah, it's something that I've been thinking a lot about is trust as a whole and how our entire legal policy and healthcare landscape would be so different. Not to mention criminal justice system, right? There's so much mistrust that we have between the people, the citizen, and the government. Yeah, it's I wanted to bring that up because it's so fascinating to think about. Uh, just the idea of trust or the lack thereof. Trust is—I uh, mean, it's this is a much broader topic, but I feel like that's a great concept, you know, to at least ponder. Is you know, what if trust was default and not like a like you said a rare thing to be given? But I think the reality is that like we've just gone so far past that stage, and like trust is. When people have put trust as like a default setting, it's been abused and you know hurt so many times that now everyone's on guard. And I guess the bigger question then becomes: Well, what's driving people to do things to break that trust? Like, what is it that's motivating people to go out there and and break the trust? And you know, what can be done about that? And I don't know. I think like within healthcare, sometimes that. Driver of this trust is money. You know, then the question is like, well, then why is it easy for people to to earn money this way? Is there not not a different way for people to you know make a living or to do whatever that doesn't exploit people's trust? So I don't know. This is a much bigger topic that none of us are going to be able to <laughs> tackle or answer. But、um, but it's definitely food for thought. Yeah, even just kind of the wide-ranging lenses of it, I think, is valuable just to think through of, you know, how trust trust is created, why trust is contained, not given freely. I think, you know, this reminds me of just the conversations around respect. Like, I think respect should be a default. Everyone deserves respect at a baseline, but I think we see similar things. Happen in terms of respect. Respect isn't always given, even though I think we all feel it is kind of a human right. And these are just some of those questions that I think are almost crucial to ask as we start moving forward into like new, more connected times. Like, I mean, this comes back to social media too. Imagine if everyone. Well, this introduces an interesting balance of trust on social media, and I think that ties into what we talked about first. Is like you can't trust everything on social media because. There's people sharing things that aren't exactly true, so it's this like tricky balance of what you mentioned of what leads people to violate trust, and then also what leads people to retain that trust or respect. And as you echoed beautifully, none of us have the answers to it, but I just think it's interesting to think about because there's everyone on the internet could be an expert, but at the same time you shouldn't trust everybody on the internet. But I do feel you should respect everybody. You know, like you just openly shared that that one negative commenter kind of beat up your day or your week. Like there's no reason someone should be disrespecting. But maybe、yeah. I don't know. I'm curious for your thoughts around the balance of trust and respect, and maybe how those bridge together. Again, don't need any clear cut answers. But how do you think about that relationship, respect and trust? 
Uh, it's it's a very tricky balance. What what comes to mind first is kind of like cancel culture and um, and like calling people out and what's the value of gaining people's trust by disrespecting somebody else. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's why I, I I try to be careful even with like you said the, the series of like trash Instagram <laughs> um, and like calling out certain Instagram posts. Like a lot of these. Instagram posts are not posted by individuals. They're, these are like anonymous accounts that have like a lot of a huge following, but they're not like an individual person. It's not going after someone's character. It's about the content that is being posted. And yeah, I, I'm not somebody who likes to just put someone on blast, an individual, and and go after them that way because that happens to us. You know, like people go after us and try to cancel us or like dox us and try to. There's all sorts of different examples there. It's tricky online. I think going back to what motivates people to do things that erode trust, I, especially on social media, it makes me wonder. Like when it comes to healthcare and social media, a lot of people are after money. If they're not after money, then they're after fame. And you're just like, what exactly is motivating that? You know, are there other avenues that they can obtain that without having to do all of this? You know, and if we think about like misinformation, especially this is a, it's so tricky because if you think about it, part of it is like how many people are responding to the things that they post, right? If we educate the general public about what truth and fact is and what science is, then maybe they're not going to be so receptive to these posts that are not evidence-based. And then these people won't have an audience anymore. But unfortunately, like not everyone kind of, I think that we just need to be more aware of how to educate people on evidence and evaluating evidence because that way they're going to gravitate to the right people but it all clearly is like very slip cyclical yeah it's such a convoluted feeding loop like you talked about right and the responsibility should be trickled down yeah it's definitely the the topic is way too grand for us to address here but i think it's definitely proposed a very important topic and conversation for people to have more about is the like relationship between trust and respect so since you were earlier talking about it's difficult for everyone to identify people that we trust. I will be sharing this episode with a lot of medical students in Philadelphia and you better trust my girlfriend's gonna do everything she can to spread this <laughs> to Temple Hospital, Jefferson Hospital. So I wanna ask a few questions on their behalf. And since you were talking about the difficulty of identifying the right candidates that you can entrust your stories with, your vulnerability with, on the same token of identification, as a executive officer, as a director of the GI department, as someone who is in a power of positions as a team leader, what are a set of criteria that you look for in your team members' qualities? Like what constitute a, let's say if you were to identify a portfolio of virtues or qualities that you're seeking with your team members or within your team as a leader of that team, because I do think that there is a difference between those who lead and those who are leaders. You know, that's a concept uh, described by Simon Sinek and Start With Why. The leaders are those who are given the title, but those who lead is uh, leadership because of your compelling why, because of your own actual skill sets. Because I think many of the issues that people have with their corporate America or workplace or the hierarchy structure is many people who are in a manager positions. They're not a manager because they're a good manager. They're a manager because they did a certain position for X amount of years. They just got automatically bumped into that positions. And many people, there's a saying, right? There's a famous adage that people don't quit their jobs because they hate their jobs. People quit because they hate their bosses. 
So as a, I think from the outside view, I think you're a great boss just for how personable and affable you are. Like, what are some of the criteria you're seeking? Ooh, um, in identifying leaders that I work with or are people that what people should be looking for, you're asking? And the qualities that you personally as a leader yourself look for in your team. Well, I think this is a really timely question because I'm currently reading through applications for our advanced endoscopy fellowship program. <laughs> so this is the seventh year after, you know, people have graduated from medical school. This is kind of the seventh year after of, of training that people are applying for it. And it's a match process. So that means that, you know, when we, after we read all the applications and we decide who to interview and, you know, people who interview will then rank their programs that they've interviewed at and then the programs themselves will also rank all the candidates and a computer does the matching and you'll be left with one place that you're going to go to hopefully um, for people who match so um, I think it's really timely because clearly I'm looking for a lot of these qualities and I think that some of the most important qualities are uh, being proactive and not just handed things Sometimes I have to read in between the lines to gather that in someone's application. But, you know, if we're talking about like innovation and bringing new ideas, like you have to think outside the box and be able to offer something different. It doesn't have to be new, but it might know like a different perspective. Being proactive in like pursuing that, I think, is, uh, is one thing. The other thing is um, being reliable is really important. I mean, this is somebody that we're trying to select to work with us on a daily basis or a whole year. And I think being reliable is really important, but then also like personality wise, and also, you know, globally speaking, going to be a good representative of us after they're done with the year. And so I think that in some ways I'm trying to find someone who can, you know, who I want to be associated with, you know, just because they're really smart or great at what they do or successful on paper. You know, I think that somebody, reliable and dependable and who can represent me well, I think is really important too. Um, I'm trying to think if there's any other really key qualities that I'm looking for. At least those are probably the most important to me. And I mean, there are obviously so many different things that we look for that we find signs of, you know, in reading people's applications. But I will say that I think the least, not that it's the least important because it's clearly important, but like in trying to judge someone's like aptitude or like their, you know, scholarly performance, I feel like, you know, generally speaking, if somebody is smart and bright, you know, that's almost like a given, like I can, I should be able to see that. And I'm not going to get caught up in the weeds of like, oh, there's one more paper that was published, or there was like, you know, the grades were slightly better here, or the score was like a little bit better here. I think now that I've been through this process and have gone through cycle after cycle of like med school, residency, fellowship, advanced fellowship, all these different applications that I've done in the past and in the position that I'm in now, I feel like when I'm evaluating people, it's much more like a big picture. And which is why those qualities that I mentioned kind of earlier, the dependability and the you know innovative spirit and that sort of thing is much more important to me than just numbers. Yeah, that's a really important perspective that you brought. And I think that applies to, I personally work in corporate America, applies to any team function, almost even a sports team. You know, it's one thing if the guy can run and catch a bunch of touchdowns, but really what is his locker room presence? You know, like Terrell Owens, the old Eagles wide receiver, like he almost won us a Super Bowl, but everyone hated him in the locker room. So it's really that 
balance of, I think, to what you mentioned, talent is like the baseline, similar to how we alluded to respect should be the baseline, but it's really those extra things on top, those intangible things. And one of the ideas that you brought up that I want to zoom in on is proactivity. Uh, I personally am a bit of a efficiency or optimization junkie. I just like find it fascinating of like, how can you do more with less? And from all of the stories you just told, you know, you just talk through your fellowship experience, these numerous applications, then obviously all you have on your plate now. How do you integrate proactivity or even just efficiency? When you tell us how much you're doing, I was like, does this dude sleep three hours a night? Like, just how do you do what you do in terms of just, you know, thinking about, I'm sure there's systems that go into it or just ways of thinking about productivity and or recovery, you know, to kind of recover from that productivity. I mean, I struggle with this all the time. It's funny that that you say that because looking back, yeah, it does look like I've done a lot. And even now I have a lot going on, but it's not graceful. (laughs) And sometimes it's just like, it's not easy. And it's um, in the thick of it, I really sometimes feel like, oh my gosh, I'm so overwhelmed, which makes like those recovery periods really important. I think I, I can't really overemphasize the importance of taking breaks and stepping away from whatever it is that you're doing just for a little bit. I'm, I mean, I'm the worst person to give that suggestion because I'm bad at doing it myself. I'm bad at kind of disconnecting, whether it's from the job or, you know, literally disconnecting like online. But I think taking breaks is important. If I think about like, oh, could I have done more of certain things? I think one of the things that I've been getting better at, I will say, is indecisiveness. I used to be, or I still am, pretty indecisive. I think I was plagued by indecision way more before. And I'm, you know, I think maybe part of it was like fueled by insecurity, imposter syndrome, everything that we've talked about. But now I feel like all that time that I'm spending being indecisive and worrying about the outcome of something or worrying about the process and kind of like getting caught up in that mood. I, if I just like sat down and did it, then it wouldn't even be an issue. And so I often, the reason why I think it's becoming clearer and clearer is because sometimes when I put things off because I'm so worried about how big of a project it's going to be or how nerve wracking it is to take something on, once I actually do it, I often find that it's actually easier than I anticipated. And, and then I, I'm left wondering why I just didn't start it earlier. And, you know, it hasn't come without, this was not just all self-realization. I think this was also through conversations with those friends who I trust who will really put me in my place and say, like, why are you telling me about this? Just do it, you know, or just, like, make a decision. Like, stop doing this. Like, you talking through this, like, endlessly is not going to actually come to any sort of conclusion. So um, I've become better at that. But even then, even then, even without the indecision, when I'm, like, able to move from one task to another, I still have to step away and be like, okay, I got through a lot. I feel good about this. There's still tons left to do, but let me just like take a moment for myself because I want to be human. I know this is like kind of going off on a tangent, but I feel like the human activities that we do that are not job related or academic are really like what allows us to connect with one another, right? Whether it's sports or like music and I don't know, whatever, like interests we have, food, traveling, like those are the things that I think ultimately bring us closer to one another or the topics that really help us identify who our friends are. 
and having those experiences, you know, that's like what I, I have to take time away from that. Cause when those topics come up, I want to be able to contribute, you know, to the conversation. And, and I feel like that's helped me get to know people, you know, who I otherwise might not know as well. We love the specifics on this show. So I'd like to press you further on that. What are some of the specific recovery process or vices look like? I know you like your strolls in Rittenhouse Square. I know you like your uh, daily scrolls. I I see you a lot on the streets. Uh, Aside from, you know, drinking coffee, enjoying the nature, the walks, what are specific vices slash recovery process for you personally? Uh, Food is a big one, which the pandemic hasn't really helped. So I'm like, you know, I... I'm a city guy, so that's part of the reason why I live in Philadelphia. And the reason why I've been in all the cities I've been in is because I like having the convenience of being able to just like, if I do have a free moment, stepping out the door and having a million different options, which isn't for everyone because there are, you know, even I have moments where I'm like, God, I wish I had more outdoor space or feel more connected with nature. But yes, I think like exploring the city is one thing. Food, museums are big for me. And then other things that everyone else does, Netflix and like music. I'm a big music person, I guess I would say. It's become harder and harder to keep up with everything, but I used to be like very much like on top of like top 40 all the time and knowing everything about like the different artists and stuff like that. Um, Yeah, I mean, I still try my best to be in the moment and um, keep up with whatever people are interested in because chances are I would also be interested it's not for the sake of just keeping up with people but like if something is popular out there like I'm going to check it out because I might get sucked into it too you know yeah I asked that question because on the other side of recovery or the lack thereof is burnout right like once again you're telling me you go to restaurants you like to museums I don't trust you a bit because I still don't know how you have all that time to do all that (laughs) I just can't grapple my mind around that but you know jokes aside uh, burnout is extremely prevalent. If not, it's become increasingly more alarming, right, in all industries. But especially, I reckon, in healthcare setting as a physician, burnout has always been alarming as always. Um, so with your expertise as a social media a public figure and as expert physicians, A, what is your perception on burnout's culture? And B, how has that burnout has spoken to you on a personal level with juggling 14 different tasks at once? Uh, well, I think first, for anyone who's not medical, the burnout in healthcare is definitely very real. I always hesitate to say whether or not I've experienced it, because I feel like we use that term so often that I'm not sure, like, is it truly that everyone has experienced burnout? I feel like I've come close a couple times. As much as I want to say that, oh, it's healthcare, and that's why, you know, I, I came close to experiencing burnout in my situation, I don't think that it was all the system and healthcare itself, but everything else that I've taken on, I feel that if I had only my clinical job, I feel like I might not have gotten to that point of close to burnout. I think it's because I've been juggling so many different things that, you know, there was a point where I kind of had to step away. And, you know, to be honest, um, when the pandemic, you know, was at its peak, um, I had a lot of different things lined up for mid-2020, a lot of travel and talks I had to give, and I was really worried about how I was going to pull off the month of May. You know, the month of May was looking really hard for me because I had to travel to Chicago three separate times for three different things. 
I had to like run for the Association for Healthcare Social Media. We were putting on an in-person conference that I was planning and we had our biggest GI conference of the year was also that month. And it was just like too much. And the fact that the pandemic happened in some ways was a blessing because I, I think I would have gotten to a really bad thought. And it allowed me to recognize that like, okay, I need a little more balance. And some of these things maybe could have waited or like, or I maybe need to like start saying no to certain things. And that's something that I'm still, you know, I'm early enough in my career to still want to say yes to all the opportunities that come my way, right? Like I said at the beginning of this whole thing that I'm open to opportunities and exploring things. But I think that there, to a certain extent, I need to also start figuring out like how to save some time for myself and um, and start saying no to things. And I know that this is something that a lot of experienced people out there have said, like, you just got to learn when to say or how to say no. And it's something that I'm still working on, to, to be honest. Yeah, thanks, Austin. I really appreciate your honesty and your vulnerability in terms of your own scope of struggles, right? And I think that's one of the magic and our intention with this podcast is I think a lot of these seemingly high functioning, high achieving people, especially a public figure like yourself, when people zoom in from the outside lens, they only see an aspect or the curated persona or what they assumed you are. And they almost view you as like a superhuman, right? I mean, that's how I viewed you as before this conversation. But I think it's through these more intimate uh, conversations I think people have a true opportunity to peer into some of the behind the scenes that you are a human after all, but a very high functioning one at that, of course. I appreciate Um, that because I don't think everyone views me that way. I think some people probably view me as a child based on what I'm like on TikTok. Well, I mean, also on the on the aging hierarchies, Asians are top. So we, we we age graciously as a as a species. So that's another attribute to your I mean, it's true, right? Right. (laughs) Yeah, but yeah, I do. The reason I brought up about burnout, because I do really want to put that on a pedestal for the people because it is a phenomenon and it is a detriment to your mental health, your physical health. Yeah, because we both are equally passionate about the holistic health lens, viewing everything, of course, through evidence based approach, but more on a more holistic lens overall. So really appreciate sharing that. Um, Yeah. So with that being said, uh, let's take a slight pivot into back into your personal journey. And so, like we talked about previously, the medical community and the industry or the field of medicine is so vast and so complex, and there are so many specialties, like you named a few, but why specifically GI? Well, I think the first question I asked when I entered medical school is, do I want to do something procedural? Maybe back then I didn't really think of it as just procedural. I thought of it as like either surgical or medicine. And, um, and I was leaning towards surgery and had done, you know, been very interested and had done research in certain surgical fields. And throughout the my journey through med school, I thought I was potentially going to, you know, go into plastic surgery or orthopedic surgery or, um, and then, you know, I even entertained like other types of medicine, like neurology. But ultimately it came down to the people, the residents I worked with on internal medicine who inspired me to go into internal medicine. And I really just admired how bright they were and how they went about thinking about patients and and synthesizing all the information and um, and doing all of that. And so that's the path I decided to go down. And so at first I thought I was going to become a pulmonary critical care doctor. 
in which case my life would have been very different this past year. Um, but ended up as soon as I entered residency, thought I was going to instead do interventional cardiology. And then actually was pretty late to deciding that I was going to do gastroenterology just months basically before I had to apply. And part of the reason is because I started noticing that a lot of my friends were going into gastroenterology and I started questioning like, why is it that GI is so popular among my friends and also so competitive? And so in delving into that a little more, I started recognizing all the different reasons why people like it. And part of it is procedures. And the fact that a lot of the kind of more surgical procedures, like if there are less invasive ways of doing things, that's what the trend is, you know, not even within GI, but in cardiology, in, you know, radiology as well, things are becoming less and less invasive. So then we have alternatives that are being developed, you know, to prevent a more invasive approach. The variety was also a big deal. So, you know, not only are we dealing with just like one organ, but it's like the entire gut whether it's the esophagus, stomach, intestines, also the pancreas, liver, bile duct, and then also other kind of less tangible, kind of not organ-based concerns, but like obesity or the gut microbiome. So there's a lot of variety and many of these are hot topics. Um, and so that was also very appealing. And also just like the innovation that goes along with having a very procedural field. You know, when you have a lot of procedures, there's a lot of gadgets and toys and new devices coming out. And that's, that was super exciting to me. And then finally, the personality of the people. Like, again, my friends were all going into this field and knowing that the, this is the type of personality that it, that it attracts ended up being like another deciding factor. But all these things combined just sort of made it make sense. Yeah, there's definitely a lot there and clearly pieced together a lot of complementary factors. It wasn't just one dying passion or one specific element, but really the harmony of all of those different factors that you made, which I think is big for any decision making, regardless of what you want to study, what you want to do. But every decision, there's more than one element that I think your story really speaks to. And I kind of want to zoom in a little bit on some of like the hot factors that you mentioned, you know, a lot of times especially you've probably seen on social media, just, you know, for example, gut health becomes like a word that everyone hears, that everyone's posting about, or almost like hot topics. Two years ago, it was keto. Now there's fasting. Like, it seems like the internet gets obsessed with certain ideas at certain times. And I'm curious for your thoughts around, you know, why gut health is important, why this, I guess, GI field in general is crucial to health. Would you say it's a foundation that a lot of other health is built off of? Yeah, I mean, I think that there is a lot of truth to it. I mean, I know that everyone kind of has grown up in this society hearing phrases like you are what you eat and, you know, the idea that like what you're consuming every day plays into your health is something that it just intuitively seems to make sense for a lot of people. But it certainly isn't the only thing that determines whether or not someone has a good health outcome. But it's also something that we can control, right? Like, because we can sort of, I mean, that's a dangerous statement, but I'll say like, you know, at least we can kind of affect what we put into our bodies versus a lot of other conditions and things that can just happen sporadically. So it's something that potentially people can take into their own hands and change, which is probably, yeah, these are the reasons why I think, you know, gut health has become so popular but I think the fact of the matter is like, we still don't know a lot about, about a lot of the claims that are put out there these days. 
And even if there are little bits of evidence, I think it's not necessarily enough um, a lot of the time to really have like a consensus statement, especially among experts who have really, who are seeking like stronger evidence all the time for these claims to hold true. You know, I think that that's probably why gut health has become so popular, but we have to be very careful. Definitely makes sense. And you're board certified in obesity medicine as well. Is that correct? Yeah, I think the, so the, the motivation behind that isn't, yes, it is to take care of the patient who is suffering from obesity, but at the same time, part of the reason why is because one of my areas within my field is doing obesity related procedures, especially with regards to weight loss, whether it's patients who are seeking weight loss who've never had any sort of procedures done before, or people who've had surgery or other types of procedures done before and need to, you know, or have suffered complications or are now regaining their weight. And so I feel that because some of these patients are also, you know, fall under my care, I think it really behooved me to have that understanding or a better understanding of obesity medicine, not just the procedural aspect of it. Yeah, certainly. Kind of tying the two things together, complement each other, maybe fill in gaps of knowledge between the two, but really a more holistic understanding of them. And obesity is something that's close to my heart. I grew up very overweight and kind of that was an ongoing struggle through most of my college experience. So it's definitely something that I'm A, passionate about and B, just interested in. So I'm curious for your thoughts around what the data shows as what caused or is causing the obesity epidemic in America. I think it's <laughs> a big question, yes, like but question. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, if you were to be able to distill it down, what the data shows, what your experience from client experiences have looked like, but are there any big things, maybe like the food industry as a whole, or just what comes to mind around why America is dealing with a seeming epidemic compared to either Taiwan or other countries that don't have these same kind of issues? I mean, I think that there's so many different aspects that play into this, you know, yes, it is the food industry, you know, to a certain extent, it's also what different aspects of the food industry and also like our physical environments, whether it's, you know, people have a safe environment to go out and, you know, be physically active, or if they have access to healthy foods, what their jobs are like, you know, like whether or not they're getting a good night's sleep, if they have a good sleep schedule with whatever job that they're working at, if they're if they're working a very sedentary type of job, if they're like driving a truck all day long, if they're working the night shift, like all of this impacts whether or not people, not necessarily like whether or not they're able to lose weight, but kind of what the, what the barriers are to losing weight. And the more barriers that are put up in all these different areas, the harder it can be. There's just so many different aspects to it. But yeah, I think that that's why we can't really just simply think of it as putting down the fork and not in eating less, you know, I think that may help in the short term, right? Like restricting calories in that way may help in the short term, but we're looking for sustainable solutions as well. You know, there's no point in recommending something that is just a temporary thing. Yeah, we have to kind of reframe our thinking a bit of how we think about obesity in general. I feel like that's the common response throughout this entire interview is for the complexity of the issues, people often want to seek simple solutions, which is a off balance. The baseline is very off, that's not possible. Like complex issues require complex solutions, which requires complex collaborations. So 
In terms of the collective impact that you're trying to achieve through the GI and obesity medicine and all your specialties, another identity and achievement of yours comes to my mind and I want to ask you about, which is the Association for Healthcare Social Media. If we are correct, correct us if we're wrong, it is a it is the first nonprofit created for healthcare professionals for social media purposes, right? Yes. The way we are trying to think about it is like any other subspecialty professional society. You know, like for our subspecialties, we have, you know, different GI societies, for instance, in my field, you know, some local, some national. And we really felt that it was important to create this organization, not only to just provide resources to other health professionals, but also to legitimize what we're doing. Because, you know, a lot of the things that we were talking about earlier about, you know, seeing how we can incentivize people to get on social media, you know, a lot of thought leaders, especially like in academia, like don't have time because they're devoted to publishing papers and doing the academic thing. We need their voices on social media too, you know, because they are the pioneers of whatever area of expertise they're in. And yeah, so I think that legitimizing this whole practice of healthcare social media, providing resources, helping professionals use platforms effectively, because many of us have been able to, you know, cultivate an audience and a presence, but also like responsibly, where we really have learned the hard way oftentimes of all the different pitfalls that come with being on social media. And, you know, there's numerous, numerous different reports out there of people getting in trouble and fired from their jobs and, you know, having all sorts of consequences because of poor social media use. And, you know, that might deter some people from using social media. But I think that the idea is to at least have an awareness that these are potential pitfalls. And if you're aware of them, then you can avoid them. And, you know, the pandemic has been very detrimental to public health in terms of, you know, stuff that's being propagated on social media. But it's also inspired a lot of the social media platforms to pay more attention to health professionals. Twitter, for instance, like early on, kind of had a very uh, a push to verify a lot of the health professionals online. But, you know, verification is just only one little piece of the puzzle. I think what's more helpful that they've all recognized is that they want to help empower health professionals and educate them in how to use their platforms better. So the uh, association has been able to develop some partnerships with the platforms directly, like YouTube, uh, LinkedIn. Now Pinterest is our next kind of platform that we are hooking up with to kind of have the headquarters show us exactly like how to do the best we can on these platforms to put out good information. So it's become like a whole different effort. I feel like if we rewind two or three years ago, there definitely wasn't quite as much attention from the platforms themselves. And now, you know, YouTube has, there's a whole arm called YouTube Health now that um, is really devoted to trying to make this better. Collaboration is really what's coming to mind for me is like, and I feel like that resonates throughout your whole story is just bringing together different perspectives from different, I guess, lenses, right? Like the social media tech giants and the doctors themselves, it seems like you're almost systematizing a collaboration tool where you guys can learn from each other and ultimately help each other be better at your craft, which I think is just such an empowering mission because instead of, you know, a bunch of doctors trying to like figure out Instagram by themselves, get together and really like make more of a dent by working together in that collaboration effort. So I really just admire the like collaboration 
theme that runs underneath your entire story, whether that's your work in medicine itself, work in social media, and almost like thinking outside of the box with those different tools. Because it's one thing to post on social media, but to have the idea of how can we do this more effectively together, I think is a whole nother layer of it that I really just want to acknowledge you for and appreciate. Uh, thank you. Yeah, I think that it's interesting. I think the way that the organization was initially portrayed by media when we first launched uh, like a year and a half ago was that we were really focused on misinformation, which, yes, I think part of the idea is that the more health professionals are on there, the, the less inaccurate information you know we're aiming for. But I think that you know, as time has gone on, we've recognized that it's hard to just you know battle misinformation or like put together best practices for social media. I think now it's really just providing resources and our own experiences and working with these platforms directly to help guide everybody, but not necessarily police anyone. Um, that's not what we're here to do. Well, yeah, hopefully this will continue to, to grow. And um, it's basically, you know, we're not doing this for ourselves. We want to help others be successful so that the pediatric subspecialist whose field I have no clue about can actually start speaking up about what they're doing. As an example for myself, there's areas within my specialty. You know, there's definitely several gastroenterologists out there on like Instagram. There's much many more on Twitter. But like within advanced endoscopy and then even in bariatric endoscopy, there's like very, very few online. The issue is that like some of these treatments that we can offer are not even well publicized. You know, these are devices and tools that are not are coming from companies that don't have the massive budgets that these big pharmaceutical companies have. So patients might not even be aware that they have these options available to them. And that's the other thing is like being able to share that, hey, there are options, you may be suffering there, but we have solutions that aren't well known, but they're there. So hopefully it'll reach those people. And I think that's what privilege is about, right? Is the ability to have access to certain information that's being withheld from a lot of populations. Yes. So hopefully your work through AHSM, the Association for Healthcare Social Media, and your other social media presence can collectively contribute to that, your effort. You know, being the vanguard, being on the front line of social media, trying to lessen that gap of opportunity and lessen the gap of access so that access is more on a systematic level distributed to a more widespreading populations who are really in need of, like you talked about, the devices and the operations and the procedures you could offer. Yeah, no, thank you. I think that that's, that's the goal here. And, um, and hopefully, you know, maybe we'll get to a point one day where this guidance is just comes naturally. We don't have to necessarily have an organization, right? But I think passing generation, I'm hoping that not only will health professionals be more accustomed to using social media for this sort of purpose, but also, you know, everyone who are consumers of social media will also be able to know how to interpret the information better and be able to identify who to trust a little more clearly on social media as well. Yeah, definitely. One of the ideas that I've been thinking about throughout this conversation, it's no longer is information power, but really critical thinking is power. And I think how to think about those topics is really the ethos of a lot of the things we've talked about. And what your work so elegantly does is, all right, there's information out there. How do we think about it? How do we interpret it? How do we apply it into our everyday lives? Which I think is just a powerful reframe because, you know, 
myself as guilty as the next of thinking it's so great to be reading all of this stuff and filling my mind with all this information. But if the information is misaligned, then coming back to the quote that Ben mentioned earlier, then you're misinformed rather than uninformed. So I think that's just kind of my two cents and what I've been really taking out of this conversation a lot. And as we're beginning to wrap up a little bit, I wanted to post a question that we ask all of our guests. It's a little more higher level of just open form, but if you were to have a mentorship program, what pieces of advice would you offer up to your students? People that are coming right out of college, either health professionals or not, but just life advice, mentorship advices towards young adults in the year 2021. Ooh, that's a big question. I would say that, you know, as much as we're often encouraged to think about like our five-year plan and our 10-year plan, this is kind of like a going full circle back to like where we started, but I think always just be open to the possibilities of straying from that plan because you never know when opportunities will arise. Like if I stuck to this whole idea, traditional approach to the career, a career in medicine, I would not be doing the social media thing. In fact, that was never, the intention with social media was always to just be a hobby, something on the side. And now it's legitimately become part of my career, right? And had I not um, heeded some of those signals and just felt passionate about it and wanted to go for it, then um, I wouldn't have done that. And, you know, I felt so strongly about this years ago, despite people telling me, oh, this makes no sense. Like, you know, this is such a waste of time, but I enjoyed it. I, I believed in it. And so I went for it. And I think that it's really blossomed into, into something else. You know, I, I think back to when I started fellowship and, you know, really got into Twitter more. And there were very few of us on Twitter in gastroenterology. There were probably like five of us, you know, fast forward a couple of years later, you know, I've seen one by one, all the division chairs from GI from across the country get online. I work with all the societies now, um, you know, within our field. And it's just a complete, you know, 180. Now these GI programs have like dedicated noon conference talks about social media to help educate people to use it. We have the association now. And, you know, all the other fringe benefits of, of being on social media, all the being a part of this podcast, right? Or like all the other sort of media interviews and opportunities wouldn't have come about had it not been that I kind of strayed a little bit from the formula, you know, took a chance with being different. Um, so, you know, I think that that is pretty commonplace advice is just kind of follow your heart. But I think more importantly, like be adaptable and you never know what's going to come your way in terms of opportunities. Yeah. Follow your heart or should we say in your case, follow your gut. You know, pun intended. (laughs) Trust your gut instinct. (laughs) I I love this interview so much. And I know during your dilemma with burnout, with recovery process, with disconnections, detachments, you talked about you're still in the process of figuring out the art of saying no. So at least on our end, we really appreciate that you haven't figured out the answer to say no yet so that you say yes to our outreach effort. Because I do know you, you are constantly bombarded with interview requests on a weekly basis. So, uh, well, you know, the, the key is that I wouldn't have said no to this in the first place. So 
that wouldn't have been a question. I could go to sleep very happy tonight. <laughs> But so the second question that we ask all of our guests, especially you, with the ethos and the alignment values of our podcast, is to discover more about life through the collective experiences, because we do truly believe that more people have more similarities than differences. But、mm-hmm. you can only gauge that difference or similarities through conversations. So we will—it's a two-part question. A, we would like to challenge you as the guest of this week on our show. What are some areas in your life that you want to discover more about this week after this interview? And part two is, what would you like to encourage our listeners to discover more about in either their professional life or their personal life after listening to this powerful interview with you? Um, why don't I start by answering the second part about what other people should be considering? I mean, I was just thinking about this literally earlier today about like what should be the driving force in my life about you know what should be the main motivation in everything I do, and I feel that it's really just to live life to the fullest and experience as much as I can. And that might not be right for everyone. Like some people want to want their routine and like just stick to that. For me, I feel like I'm constantly looking for something new to experience, something new to learn. And you know, maybe people are feel the same way. I'm a big fan, of, for instance, of this、uh, YouTube channel, Yes Theory. I don't know if you've heard of it. Yeah. So I'm like a huge, huge fan of them. And honestly, like I know they've been at it for like five years or something, but really didn't. Know about them until a year ago or so. Have just been obsessed ever since because their whole platform is really about seeking discomfort. This is like a total plug for them, even though I don't know them. <laughs> <laughs> But I think that they always encourage people to do things that might make them uncomfortable. I mean, not things that aren't safe necessarily, but just things that are really unexpected and outside of their comfort zone. And so I, I would encourage people to. To like check out their stuff and and you know potentially see how you can incorporate that into your own life. But、um, for myself, I think along those lines, I've always tried to experience something different and new. And I mean, right now within the confines of the pandemic, because I I can't just like run out and do certain things. I feel that,、um, and I've always been a fan of like expanding my horizons and traveling and going to museums and things like that. But on that note, I feel. That right now, with everything that's going on in terms of like racial injustice and Black History Month and all the attacks on Asian Americans, I, I feel like I'm wanting to learn more about those history behind that. You know, what progress we've made, what progress we haven't made, what we can do about it. I think that these are things that have been on my mind lately. And honestly, like I'm, as an Asian American, I hate to confess that I'm like, I don't know very much about. The history behind it, you know, and and what struggles people have had over the decades or you know the past century,、um, especially, and so I feel like it's I really should you know do some homework and and learn from that because it it has a direct impact on how I go about life here. You know, I, there's no saying, especially at this point in time, if things are going to get better or get worse. I think a lot of us are hoping that we can do things to to improve upon the situation, but. You never know if things are going to escalate, and so I think it would be good for me to have a little more context and learn more about this. Yeah, we love those answers. I think your latter part of the question, what you're starting to discover more about 
filling in the gaps of knowledge around racial history in America speaks to your students' mindset, kind of always trying to learn more, fill in the gaps of where you could learn as much as you know about medicine. There's always more things to learn, more things to observe. So we do love and appreciate that answer. And especially the yes theory, we both laughed when you mentioned them because we've been following their journey the entire way through. They're low-key one of our most aspirational interviews to date, so we appreciate you plugging them on the podcast. Um, But I really kind of want to just echo what you said is, you know, their ethos of seeking discomfort and then subsequently love over fear. I've been riffing on that idea a lot recently. It's like decisions are almost binary, being A, love, B, fear, and trying to lean into that A, love over and over and over again is kind of been a bit of a philosophy that I've taken away from their channel and try and integrate into my own life. We really just want to appreciate you for coming on, talking to us for this long. Could you please let our listeners know how they can connect with you, whether that's your Instagram, kind of a lot of the things that you're up to? Of course, yeah. I'm I'm pretty easy to find. It's everything. Uh, my handle is the same everywhere. It's Austin Chang MD. You can find me on Twitter, TikTok, YouTube, Instagram, Clubhouse. Let me know that you heard me here, and I'll try to get back to you as quickly as I can. Yeah, I almost jumped out of my chair in exclamation point with joy because of Yes Theory. That's a channel that is dear to my heart. I never purchase any merchandise on YouTube, but Yes Theory is the one channel that I support over and over again. Aside from their purchases, always goes towards donation, that aside. And I think what Aiden talks about, the ethos of love over fear is so profound, right? And I think that beautifully ties into full circle about our trust topics and respect topics. For me, obviously there's exceptions to the rule. Like you don't want to give out your trust or give out your social security number to a stranger. There's obviously... Uh, nuances and common sense ingrained in what I'm about to say. But to me, the cost of me mistrusting other people is far greater than the damage of what mistrust could do to me. So I think choosing love over fear over and over again is a practice that has to be cultivated just like anything else. Right. Yeah. But I really, really resonate with what you talked about how seeking discomfort is so important. Aiden and myself, we both subscribe to this statement on this show is. We truly believe that there is no comfort without discomfort. There is no purpose without pain and there is no uh, light without darkness. Um, And you almost have to experience the discomfort of life because, you know, if you are into like philosophy like Nietzsche and stuff, a lot of them talks about the inheritance sufferings that comes with life, right? It's almost like a contract you signs. The only thing that guaranteed is death and the sufferings that comes with it. So I I try to embody the ethos and the philosophy of seeking discomfort through all aspects of my life, aside from my admiration for the channel. With that being said, we will link all your information in the show notes, as always, to all the listeners for everything you've done so far. Yeah, I really appreciate that you were able to slice this in into your busy schedule. And we also hope that you can venture further into your own recovery process and disconnect a little bit more because... The last thing we want is you experience burnout and your presences like subside or gets limited because we want to see more and more of you, right? As you get bigger and bigger. So really appreciate you spending like near three hours on this Saturday afternoon. And to all the listeners, as always, we truly appreciate you for staying and joining on this journey. And we hope to discover with you again next time. Thank you for listening to another episode of Discover More. 
We release a new episode every Monday on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, and would really appreciate if you have subscribed and shared this with your friends. We hope you enjoyed this episode, and join us next week in the journey of discovering more through intentional dialogues.